With summer a distant memory and the harvest period having drawn to a close, Halloween was considered a turning point in the traditional calendar year. As the beginning of the dark season, Ihahona, literally November night, celebrated at sundown on the 31st of October, has long stood out in popular tradition as a time particularly associated with the spirits of the other world. Individuals out travelling the road at this time were considered liable to meet with the fairies, the dead or the puka, the mischievous phantom horse that would abduct wayfarers, taking them on terrifying rides across the countryside by night. Joining me in studio this evening to talk about the traditions of Halloween, some no longer practised, is Dr Christor McCarthy, the director of the National Folklore Collection in UCD. Um, Christor, you've brought some fascinating audio recordings from the collection, which we're going to hear as we go along, where people talk about their memories of these traditions. But first of all, let's talk about the history and the origins of Samhain. It's been with us for millennia at this stage. Yes, it's very, very old and it's very much part of Celtic mythology, the origins of Samhain, because the Celts divided, like most societies in Europe, divided the year in two halves. So this would have been the beginning of the dark period of the year when there was no growth, whereas May was really the celebration of summer and you're entering into the most fertile and most productive parts of the year. So it's not surprising that an awful lot of tradition and mythology and belief and practice centres around Iahauna or Halloween, November Day and indeed May Day because they are almost like liminal points in time. You know, the end of one period, the beginning of another. And in the case of Halloween, it's profound because it's beginning of the dark period of, of the year. And I would imagine that some of the things that we used to get up to, not so much anymore, it's all trick or treat now, uh, it's all to do with, 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 with sweets and candy and chocolate and stuff, but the things that you people used to get up to with, with apples, for example, was to do with the agriculture of that time of the year. It's around the time that you basically bring the apples in, you pick them. Absolutely, Miles. It's, it's seasonal, so, you know, you bring in the harvest, and everything, uh, apples, fruits, everything had to be picked. Food stored, your potatoes safely dug into pits and so on. The animals are brought down from, if they were grazing on the hills, you brought them in closer to home. Sometimes in under the same roof, indeed, um, historically, in this part of Western Europe and, and further, further north. So it's the end of the agricultural year. And it's also the time, interestingly, November, early November, when tributes were paid, you know, to landlords and formerly kings. We know that the old assemblies of uh, in Rathcrohan and Tara, Carmen and Wexford were huge assemblies and a lot of business was transacted uh, at that time. So you, you bought and sold, you exchanged animals and, as I said, you paid tributes. Uh, tributes to the landlord in November would have been November would have been one of the gale days. The so that's days. when you basically paid him the rent. So that's the tribute he was looking for. Exactly. Uh, now, one of the this is one that I must say I was completely unfamiliar with. Uh, you, you brought us, as I say, a number of clips. The first one, and we'll hear it in a moment, is uh, a man called Patrick Johnson from County Westmeath, and he talks about putting out a bucket of water on Halloween night. What was what was that about? I haven't come across that one at all. Yeah, this is clean water. It was an important time of the year for, for two reasons. One, that liminal moment that I talked about meant that the dead and 
supernatural beings were visible and could pay visits at that time. So it was considered very important to keep the house tidy, swept, clean. To some degree even, and this spilled over into All Souls Day, you know, which is the 1st of November, the idea of leaving a, a symbolic plate of food or something for the dead. But also for the fairies so and supernatural beings because there was a great fear that you could be injured or taken into the other world at mm. this point in time. So all those preparations were essential, you know, to, to guard against any interference by uh, the supernatural world. So this is Patrick Johnson from Moat, County Westmeath, recalling how people would prepare the house for Halloween. It was the Hullentide night, and everyone that time would have tea and water put in, a bucket of tea and water. And the next, I says, what did they want, would it? He'd say, any water in tonight? No, well, it has to be in for tonight. And I say, what are you talking about, the clean water? What has to be in for? Well, the good people is supposed to be in every house that go round about and has a great time tonight. And often a child has to be washed. They want the, co- the water. And if it's not there, something in the house will be done or a pig a day and you, or something. The water is supposed to be there for that night. The voice of Patrick Johnson from Moat in County Westmead there. Now, it was it was a celebration, Chris, though, perhaps because it was darker. It's not surprising the festival garnered supernatural and otherworldly association, I think, presumably from the earliest times. Yes, the supernatural dimension is so important, it's so critical. I mean... The reason, for instance, that people go out in disguise, they, you know, guising at this time of the year. Again, this was to disguise your own personality for two reasons. One, you, you couldn't be identified by the other world, by supernatural forces. and You were less likely to be uh, swept, as they'd say. And on the other hand, it allowed you to get up to all sorts of mischief because a lot of, <laughs> the, the, you know, social norms were temporarily suspended you know, for this moment in time. So young people especially could get up to all sorts of tricks and mischief, whereas, you know, that wouldn't be permitted outside of that particular time. So it's a moment of disorder, if you like, and it in itself emphasises the importance of social norms. It actually reinforces, so it lets off steam, in effect. Uh, now, adults would also get involved as well and uh, would do things to frighten children. This is uh, Willie Rourke from Roscommon and he recalls how grown-ups used to scare the children with stories of the puka as a warning to them. A time ago when the old people would be around the fire where there'd be a lot of children well there might, might be two or three families of children around about playing and yeah. in a, for an hour and then they'd all go but the old people would be telling ghost stories about where they seen the poker and such an old person, an old man coming up the road with a big stick under his arm and a big whisker on him, yeah. going to bring you off. Then they tell you after November night, yeah. no one would be cut out, any child would be cut out after that. The poker would bring him off, stick his two horns into him and carry him off. Yeah. Well, then... They, had, they were telling them that no one had ate slows yeah. after 
November night that the Pope used to come and make his nuisance on. I see. Hmm. <laughs> The voice of Willie Rourke from Roscommon in that audio recording from the National Folklore Collection. Now, Chris Thor, sound was, it was a night for celebration. And with celebrations, obviously, there has to be food, a tradition that we uphold today. So what are the, the I mean, things like, well, apples, obviously, mobbing for apples, barn brack, colcannon and stuff like that. Tell us about some of the culinary traditions associated with Halloween. Yes, and these are festive foods with the em- emphasis on the fruits, primarily. In the case of Colcannon, these are the newly dug potatoes, you know, harvested. Uh, so you'd have a festive dish prepared from them, mixed with a bit of cabbage. There's there's great argument as to exactly whose recipe. <laughs> Everyone has a, has a mother or a grandmother who had a particular recipe. But that was a festive food, you know, again, with lots of butter you know, make a hole in the centre and pile a load of butter into it. Um, very fattening. Mm. But, uh, you know, that's the beginning of winter, cold period of the year. So that certainly wasn't on people's minds dieting at that time of the year. So apples, fruits, nuts. And in Ireland's case, it's hazelnuts primarily. You know, we think now of monkey nuts being almost derogere at Halloween. But hazelnuts were the traditional one so it's quite simple food in in many ways but a feast and, and the barn brack nowadays we associate at this time of the year with a, just a ring but uh, you know back in the day there was far more than a ring in the barn brack yes you could have a little piece of wood you could have a little piece of cloth or something thrown in if you got the little piece of wood you would wind up poor this is a form of divination in effect and a lot of divination, divining what the future held for you was very central to Halloween. And the barn brack is a nice example of that. So several little items, including a ring or a coin, for instance. So that'd be riches, right? Presume. Riches, exactly. Yeah. So a ring would be you're going to get married. married. Cloth? A cloth or a piece of uh, a string meant you would be, remain single and are, are poor. All right. Anything in there that we put in there to signify death, perhaps, or anything as morbid as that? Well, that was done in another way, you know, with the saucers, the, if you like, where somebody was blindfolded, three saucers were put in front of them. In one of the saucers was water, in the other a ring, and in the other clay. So the saucers were moved about rather like a three-card trick, mm. and then you selected it. If you selected the clay, you would have an early death. The ring, of course, marriage. And water, you would travel. You would go abroad. Across the sea. Yeah. So it's to do with migration as well. Very much so. And that was obviously, as you know, a, a huge theme uh, in Irish social history, okay. migration. You mentioned uh, divination. The next clip we're going to hear is Maura Ban Ogon talking about the various games they played, which included divination. Uh, Halloween it was much the same now, but I don't think they do it very much now. We'd have um, the apples, you know. And to try and catch one hanging out of a string and trying to catch it and that sort of thing. Then you'd have a saucer, you'd have clay on that, another saucer, you'd have water on it, another saucer, and you'd have a ring on it. Forget the rest of them. And you'd be blindfolded, each one would be blindfolded, and they'd go over whichever one they'd put their hand into. If you put your hand on the ring, you'd be married the first, and you put her hand on the water, you'd cross the sea. And if you put your hand in the clay, you'd die. Before the first, <laughs> and ah, that'll go on. Same. Much, I think, much the same happens now, but I don't think they do it so often now. 
That was Maura Baniogoin talking about divination. Now, Halloween is most associated today with children dressing up. Obviously, centuries ago, the costumes would have been a lot simpler, less elaborate than they are today. So the, the reasoning behind dressing up was this to, as you suggest, maybe to disguise yourself from uh, the fairies or the people of the other world? Very much so. And to some degree, you're mimicking the ogres, the, you know, the horrific beings like the pook, the fairies and so on that were believed to be uh, present at that so time. So it's the equivalent of the wearing a zombie costume today, uh, I suppose. Effectively, yeah. effectively. So there's an element of horror about it. Also, as I said, it gave you licence to do things, to pretend you were somebody else. I mean, cross-dressing featured very strongly in this, for instance. You know, men dressing up as women, women dressing as men. So, you know, the, the normal roles were reversed and upturned. It's a kind of mayhem, controlled mayhem. And then there's the mischiefing, the, the mischief-making. And in, in the southeast, they often refer to it and still do in the the Gaeltacht area of Waterford as Ihe na Hamileisha, the night of wretchedness. And uh, uh, in Waterford and Wexford, they would take it to huge extremes. You know, they would take doors off barns. They would do things like climb up onto a roof, a thatched roof, and cover the chimney with a sack to smoke people out. All sorts of tricks. I presume this is something you did not to people you liked, but to people you disliked. Or well, did, it necess- did it necessarily follow? The milder forms of mischief were directed at everybody, mm. you know, so everybody got a, got a clout, as it were. But yes, if there were particularly grumpy uh, <laughs> individuals, this was a way of sending a message to them. Now, Chris, there were a, a phrase most associated with Halloween today, um, you know, I would think of it as an, very much an important phrase, trick or treat. Is it true that on Halloween there will be groups of young men, young men are not children, going around causing a lot of, of mischief? Yeah, it's interesting. We associate Halloween with children almost exclusively now. But this was really young men primarily uh, going from place to place and creating a certain amount of mayhem, you know, license to behave badly. And I suppose over time that has devolved, and you see this often with a lot of traditions, that where children take on the role, it's a sign that the tradition is in decline. Mm. Today it's more democratic as well because, you know, there's no distinguish. It's not just young, largely young men. This is our boys and girls uh, dressing up. But I'm, I'm taking from what you're saying about people taking doors off barns, of removing gates, uh, that kind of thing, and also a lot of young men, and we know what young men can get up to when they're uh, trying to have a bit of fun, that Halloween would not necessarily have been welcomed by everybody. No, there was a certain amount of fearfulness, <clears throat> but that's appropriate for the time of year. I suppose. In, in some ways, you know, <clears throat> you're going from the period of light into the period of darkness. So the dark side manifests, and I guess we we expect that. For our final clip, so we're going to hear from Michael Walsh from Offaly, who recalls the youths going around playing tricks on their unsuspecting neighbours. They take their gates and they'll throw them into a drain They'll be our next day looking for them and they'll take a barn door off of a cow house or off of a barn or a door off of a cow house and they'll carry them off and they'll go and they'll take that man's one or two of his gates or wheel wicked gates or doors and they'll take them off somewhere else. 
and they'll be going around nearly all night. That was Michael Walsh from Offaly. That's a tradition we hope is well and uh, truly gone. And, I mean, to what extent are we, the Irish, accountable for the entire tradition of Halloween? Obviously, it's a tradition that is only observed in, in certain countries. But I'm thinking, to what extent did the Irish bring Halloween to the United States and then re-import trick or treat a uh, century, century and a half later? Yes, it's intriguing um, process, but certainly it would have been largely Irish, who the Irish populations, the diaspora, who introduced uh, and made popular the idea of Halloween. And it worked well in America because the, the Spanish, the, the Mexicans... They had the Day of the they, Dead. They had the Day of the Dead. So mm. there's a natural overlap between them. So the idea of the skulls and the crossbones and so on entered in there. But certainly... It really took hold in the 1980s after the Halloween series of movies came out. And that really, we've experienced a backwash uh, of that here in Ireland. So as a child growing up in Dublin at this time of year, we would go from house to house saying, help the Halloween party. It's as simple as that. Any fruit, any nuts and maybe a bit of money, perhaps even sweets. Nowadays, the the fruit and the nuts are are less important. It's money. It's sweets and so on like that. And You'll get the fruit thrown back at you if you, if you offer it. Yeah. <laughs> this is it. And it's now trick or treat. Yeah. So, but folklore traditions don't stand still. So, you know, we can expect things to evolve and uh, it's kind of spreading. So it's, a, I suppose it's a form of cultural imperialism that has come back to haunt us. Chris Thor, thank you very much indeed for talking to us this evening. For anyone who would like more accounts of the kind of things that went on at Halloween from the National Folklore Collection, go to the uh, collection's website, ducas.ie, D-U-C-H-A-S dot I-E, where you will find a whole host of material. My guest was Chris Thor McCarthy, and uh, Chris Thor, thank you very much for sharing with us the history of Ihahauna and the traditions of that festival. Uh, those that remain, those that are forgotten, and uh, th- those that, as you suggest, have been renewed. Thank you, Miles.